Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Tom Pashby, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago, and he's here to discuss quantum mechanics. Tom Pashby, welcome. Thanks, Matt. All right, quantum mechanics. It's an interesting topic, I think, because it's very complicated, but it's also a topic that's made its way into popular culture to a certain extent. There's like, Mm -hmm. people will talk about quantum theory in a way that they will not talk about other kind of obscure, difficult, detailed areas of research. So I thought maybe we could start just by saying what exactly quantum mechanics is, maybe what earlier physical theories were saying, how quantum mechanics is different, what's the difference between classical mechanics and quantum mechanics, something like that. Yes, well, quantum mechanics is really a very general framework for formulating physical theories. Pretty much anything that you study, be it materials science or chemistry or even something quite esoteric like a black hole, we try to treat with quantum mechanics because we think it's somehow the right framework for articulating the physical rules of our our world. Okay, right. So it's a theory that explains every single physical thing that happens in the entire universe. It's like a you know, there's nothing that it doesn't cover that's physical anyway. Well, that's the ambition. And I, I should say here we're at an interesting moment in physics where we have two frameworks which are potentially incompatible, general relativity and quantum mechanics. And the, and the hot question in theoretical physics is whether they can be unified somehow. And we have programs like string theory that aim to do that. But modulo those sort of worries, yes, we tend to think of quantum mechanics as a, a sort of universal physical theory or framework for in particular theories of physics. What exactly is different about quantum mechanics from what came before? Like, how is it a different way to look at the world? Yeah, well, when you go back and read what the physicists thought about the new physics they were uncovering in the 20s and 30s, there's this real sense of shock that something has been radically broken in their understanding of the physical world. And now when one of the first courses you take as an undergraduate is quantum mechanics, it's perhaps um, hard to sort of recreate that shock. Um, But what I see as being the break with classical physics, which is generally what we call all physics up to and including the early 20th century, uh, so essentially Newtonian physics and then physics that came after that, like electrodynamics and so on and so forth, that's all classical physics. So classical essentially means not quantum in this context. So what I see as being the major difference is the involvement of probability at a fundamental level in quantum mechanics in a way that it doesn't appear in 
classical physics. So that's not to say that probabilities don't appear in classical physics. One of the great innovations of the 19th century was statistical mechanics, which certainly does involve probabilities. But those were probabilities concerning what we know rather than what there is. So there's this appearance of probability in a sort of fundamental way in quantum mechanics where we can't get beyond the probabilities to say um, what the world is really like. The theory gives us the probabilities. What are they probabilities of? Well, that's one of the big interpretive questions. Oh, interesting. Right. So I can flip a coin and probability is applicable to that because I can think about, well, what are the chances it's going to land heads? And that's maybe one way that probability could come in. But then maybe it's very different to ask a question like, did the coin land heads or tails? I mean, the, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. um, coin analogy is a good one. Okay. Because it's actually quite a good way to think about qubits, which we'll get to in a bit. So, yeah, I think the, the coin analogy is what's the difference between a quantum coin and a classical coin? Essentially, it's that there's only one way to flip a classical coin. There are these two outcomes, heads and tails. That's really all you can do with this flipping experiment on your coin. Um, With a quantum coin or a qubit, there are all sorts of different experiments you can do, each of which have two outcomes. But what the quantum state of your qubit or quantum coin does is encode the probabilities for all sorts of different experiments. And somehow we think of those probabilities as fixing the states of your quantum coin. You can go back and forth between assignments of probabilities and the state of this physical system. But if the state is nothing more than an encapsulation of these probabilities, you know, what is the qubit? It seems like we don't have a particularly good answer to that question. Yeah, so it's like the state of the world itself is kind of indeterminate. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that, and and sort of probabilities enter in in that way. Yes, so it's this indeterminateness that comes up in these fun thought experiments like Schrodinger's cat, which um, we'll talk about later. Well, maybe we should just talk about Schrodinger's cat now, actually. So, yes, indeterminacy is really key to thinking about what's worrying about quantum mechanics. Now, if you've heard anything about quantum mechanics, you've probably heard of Schrodinger's cat. And the worrying thing about Schrodinger's cat is supposedly that the states of the cat, i.e. the health of the cat, is it alive or dead, is indeterminate before we open the box. So let's just run through the thought experiment. Um, We've got a radioactive atom. If the radioactive atom decays, it sets off this little Heath Robinson device that releases some poison. If the poison is released, the cat dies. But what we do is put this whole thing in a box. Um, We close up the box and we wait for one half-life of this radioactive particle, So, which is just the time interval over which the probability for decay is a half. So let's say it's an hour, we put all this stuff, cat, poison, so on, radioactive particle in this box, and then we wait for an hour. After an hour, we'll open the box, we'll see whether the cat is alive or dead, but when we're looking at this sealed box, the quantum state seems to tell us that the cat is neither alive or dead. It's what's known as a superposition of these two states. So that's the sort of indeterminacy that was introduced by quantum mechanics. 
Right, okay. And maybe we sort of can kind of emotionally handle the idea of things being indeterminate this way at the sub-microscopic teeny-tiny level. But maybe what's interesting about this thought experiment is that it involves some you know weird phenomenon happening at the quantum level, kind of like percolating up to the macroscopic, everyday observable level. Uh, because in the everyday observable world, we certainly don't come across things that are like half where it's superposed between being alive and dead. Exactly, yeah. And this was precisely Schrodinger's aim with this example. He says in the realm of the very small, say the atomic radioactive nucleus, that sort of indeterminacy or blurring doesn't bother us. And then this example of the cat is designed to make us very uncomfortable with the idea that things can be in these sort of indeterminate states. Is that generally what we find? Like, do we find that some of the counterintuitive things that happen at the quantum level can affect things happening at the macroscopic physical level? Or is it sort of like a convenient fiction for us to pretend that everything behaves the way we thought it behaved at the macroscopic level? And only when you get down to this you know, nitpicky fundamental level do systems behave in this new way? Well, this was really a live question for people like Einstein and Schrodinger, um, thinking about these questions in the 30s. But now, 80 years later or so, the technology we have to perform experiments in the lab actually gives us good grounds to believe that there's no sort of size limit on quantum phenomena. That is, you can superpose not just atoms, but molecules, even very large molecules such as this molecule called Buckminster fullerene, which has the shape of a sort of soccer ball, this hexagonal arrangement, that's 60 carbon atoms, that's a pretty big molecule, we've seen superposition for those sort of systems, and there doesn't seem to be a restriction on length scale either. Now, that's not to say that there's not a big difference between, you know, a C60 molecule and a cat, but there seems to be reason to suppose that the difference isn't one of principle. So what are some of the empirical findings that led scientists to this theory? Well, one of the ways into quantum mechanics, probably the main way into quantum mechanics, was thinking about light and electromagnetic radiation. And one of the preferred systems in sort of experimental quantum physics is the photon the particle of light first proposed by Einstein in 1905. So today we think of a beam of light as, in some sense, we won't be able to make this precise, but in some sense composed of a whole bunch of photons. And that's the sort of thing we do optics experiments on. And these photons have a certain kind of property called polarization, And this is a property possessed by sort of individual photons, but also great big bunches of them. So um, I've got an experiment here that is fun to sort of introduce this. Obviously, it's not going to work too well over the medium of a podcast. Oh, no problem. I'll just describe what I'm looking at. Yeah, so I have in front of me several polarization filters. And what these do is cut out all the photons don't have a particular polarization. So if I hold up the filter to the light, it cuts down the light a little bit, but I can see perfectly well through it. I'm looking through the window here. Yeah, it looks like translucent gray or something. Yeah. And this is exactly how polarized sunglasses 
work. They just cut out all the orientations of polarised photons apart from one. So it's, you know, just like putting on a sort of sunglasses monocle when I hold this up to my eye. All right, so I've got several of these here, exactly the same. And if I orient them at 90 degrees and look through both of them, then it's completely black, or pretty much black. So what's going on? Well, the first polarization filter cuts out anything that isn't horizontally polarized, so horizontally. So if I orient the second filter vertically, then all the horizontally polarized photons come to this vertical polarizer. They can't get through the vertical polarizer, so the photons don't get through. I don't see anything. It's black. Right. So it's like each photon is polarized one way or the other. The first filter that's oriented horizontally cuts out half of them, and then the vertical ones get through. And the other filter, when you rotate it 90 degrees, blocks all the photons that are vertically polarized and lets the horizontal ones through. When you put one next to the other, it gets all of them, and that's why it looks opaque. Yes, exactly. So what would you expect to see if I put a third polarizer in between the horizontally and vertically oriented ones? Well, I think I would expect it to also be opaque because if the horizontal one is blocking the horizontal photons, the vertical one is blocking the vertical photons, and the two of them, as we just saw, are blocking all the photons, then sticking a further interfering blocking thing in between them shouldn't change that. It should just still be totally black. Right, and that's the sort of classical expectation here. However, if I take this third filter and sort of orient it diagonally, so if I insert this at 45 degrees, Matt and I can now see each other across the room. Oh my god. So what was formerly pretty much black with no light coming through, just by putting in this third diagonally oriented polarization screen, we're now seeing photons make it through all three screens. Okay, yes, that is completely nuts. And so the sort of thing that this leads us to suppose is that it's wrong to think of photons as just sort of little balls that perhaps have different colors and these polarizing filters are just sort of filtering out all but one color because if that were the case you would expect the diagonal filter that I put in the middle to make absolutely no difference. If only um, these little balls with this label of um, horizontal polarization were in the light beam then there'd be no way to somehow introduce this third filter and get them through the vertically polarizing filter. And I guess maybe you'd be really kind of in the weeds to see fully how, but I guess generally, rather than thinking of the photons as little balls that get blocked from passing through the filter, if we think of them as these systems that might be in this state but might be in this other state, uh, somehow that explains this result where sticking the diagonal filter in between the horizontal and the vertical one lets some of them through. Yeah, so it's actually what is known as the superposition principle, one of these um, fundamental principles of how quantum systems work, how you relate different states of the same quantum system. So here's how the sort of quantum explanation goes for this phenomenon invoking superposition. So what the horizontal filter is doing here is 
making sure that the only photons making it through the filter have this horizontal state. So every photon coming through the filter has the state horizontal polarization. Now when we turn the filter 90 degrees so it's vertically oriented, all the photons coming through that have this vertical polarization. Now classically those would seem incompatible and that's sort of what we found by putting the horizontal behind the vertical and not seeing anything come through. What quantum mechanics and the superposition principle tells us is that those two states aren't so different. In fact, they can be combined to make a third state a diagonally polarized state. So any two, this is the superposition principle, any two allowed states of a quantum system um, can be combined to create a third allowed state of a quantum system. And do those two states, when they combine to form the superposed state, do they have to be like intuitively incompatible? Or I think you said something on those lines. Or is that just was that just a starting point for this case? Well, it's a general principle. So they could be not incompatible at all, or they could be... Um, oh, but it doesn't matter if they're incompatible. They could yes, still be superposed. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So how does that allow us to explain this strange phenomenon where I'd blocked all the lights, but then putting a third filter in between them allowed them through. Well, given what I've just said, when I put this diagonally oriented um, filter in there, what I get through that are photons in the diagonal state. But photons in the diagonal state are just photons in a combination of the horizontal and vertical states. So these diagonally polarized photons, when they come to the third filter, the uh, vertical filter, well, this quantum state is a combination or superposition of horizontal and vertical. So again, half of them are going to get through. So in terms of the intensity, the first filter cuts out half the photons, the second diagonal filter cuts out half the photons, and the third vertical filter cuts out half the photons. So we end up with an eighth in the final thing. But without the diagonal filter, we ended up with none. So with the first filter is cutting out half the photons, and the third filter is cutting out the other half the photons, what exactly is the second filter doing? Is it like changing the state of some of the photons that went through the first filter into a superposed state? Or Well, here we're getting into some thorny issues. So if we think of these filters as performing measurements on the quantum system. In asking exactly the sort of questions you're asking there, we're getting into this issue of what it means to measure a quantum system. Seems to be good reason from the formalism to think that these systems don't have pre-existing properties, but when we measure them, like in the Schrodinger's cat example, when we open the box, we do find that they have definite properties. So that's the sort of thorny issue at the heart of difficulties interpreting the formalism. Yeah, and that's highly counterintuitive because we like to think the world is the way it is independently of what people think or say about it or what they observe. So there is some fact of the matter about what the temperature on the surface of Pluto is right now. I have no idea what it is, 
but like the f- whether I know what the temperature on the surface of Pluto is right now shouldn't change what the temperature actually is. We intuitively think there's like uh, you know whether I've checked to see whether something is true is independent of whether it in fact is true. Is that like breaking down here? Yeah. So this is I think one of the main worries that physicists had with the newly discovered quantum formalism that it seems to be introducing this sort of dependence on what there is on whether we go and look for it whether there is a fact of the matter seems according to the formalism to depend on whether we go and look for it there's this famous remark of Einstein's who said incredulous do you really believe that the moon is only there if you look right I think in a way maybe it really becomes vivid if you think about like an interaction between two people. So I'm sitting here in my room, I don't know, knitting, and my friend is walking over to my house wondering whether I'm knitting. You know, I was sitting here knitting. I knew the whole time that I was knitting. The fact that my friend discovered that I was knitting didn't suddenly make it the case that I was knitting. Like, I've been here the whole time. I I can tell you that. You know, I was here doing that. You know, so if you sort of like compare the knowledge states of two people, then it maybe even becomes even more vivid that like, yeah, obviously the fact that some other person learned about something becoming the case doesn't make that the case. It was independently. Yes, and this is the sort of worry that motivates physicists and philosophers to try and come up with a way of thinking about quantum mechanics or an interpretation of quantum mechanics that avoids some of these strange dependencies on on what there is on how we find out about it and and whether we bother to find out about it. Okay, interesting, right. So the formal mathematical theory seems to predict this highly counterintuitive stuff, and then maybe the job of people trying to figure out what that formal theory actually kind of means is to maybe square it with these basic intuitions we have so that it seems less weird, alien, unintelligible, like it doesn't make sense. Yes, yes. So... That's kind of the task in philosophy of quantum mechanics, to try and figure out just what quantum mechanics means and to try and either limit the strangeness or do away with it or um, find a way of living with it. And so there are various options that you can take and which option you choose kind of depends on which weirdnesses you prefer and um, what leaves you unsettled, what you can't live with. Hmm. What would be an example of one of those trade-offs? Is there, uh, so maybe on the one hand, it's like we have to suck up this unpleasant idea that observing something makes what you learned from the observation the case with the fact that, well, this theory makes really accurate predictions about the way photons behave with polarization filters and so forth versus, no, 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 we want to hold on to this idea that, like, facts of the matter in the world are independent of our observations, but then the cost of going that route is that we don't have a good way to predict some of these uh, experimental results. Yeah, well, it's not so much that these interpretations fail to get the experiments right. They all at least claim to produce the same results. It's more that holding on to some bit of classical physics that uh, marries with your intuitions is going to incur a cost elsewhere. So let me give you an example. So let's say you just love the idea that everything around you is just made up of these point particles. You know, we look at this 
desk we're sitting at and ultimately what that is going to be is just loads of little particles that occupy a spatial point they have no no spatial extent and they're just whizzing around they have a determinate position at all time there's no uncertainty about their position so let's say that's the bit of classical physics that you like and want to keep well there's a way of doing that it's called de Broglie-Bohm theory after Louis de Broglie a French prince and David Bohm an American physicist and what Bohm was able to show is that there's a fairly straightforward way to interpret the quantum probabilities as just probabilities regarding uh, which particular configuration of these point particles happens to be the case. The quantum state gives us probabilities for where all the particles might be, but we don't have to doubt that they have determinate positions. So, okay, that sounds great. Sounds just like... I um, love it, yeah. (laughs) Sounds just like Newtonian physics, but there's a cost. What we've done by introducing these definite particle positions is in order to replicate the experimental results that we want to get right from quantum mechanics. In order to get those, we have to introduce these non-local dependencies of these particle positions, such that what I do here on Earth in my lab can instantaneously affect what's going on in your lab, say in Alpha Centauri, doesn't matter how far away it is, and that's reflected in the instantaneous reaction of the particles in your lab. They have definite positions, but those positions are going to depend on what's going on as far away as you like, or at least they can, and those dependencies are going to be explicitly non-local. And classical physics is local. Now, that may sound a bit like Newtonian universal gravitational force, which was supposed to be involve action at a distance. What's somewhat ironic is that Einstein has taken to have shown with general relativity that gravitation can be expressed as a local phenomenon. But at the same time, he was also working on quantum mechanics, which seems to introduce these sort of non-local effects. Yeah, so episode 17 with Brandon Fogel, we talked a little bit about this action at a distance idea. And like, yeah, the main thing that a lot of scientists and philosophers over the millennia have thought was spooky about that is, well, if an object over here can instantaneously affect an object way over there without anything passing in between them, then we kind of like lose our ability to explain anything anymore because who knows what the cause of anything is really if something on the other end of the universe could be magically pulling the strings and making it happen. We like it just you know in order to be able to scientifically explain anything, a basic assumption a lot of people have thought has to be that in order for one thing over here to affect another thing over there, something has to pass between. Yes, and there's kind of a neat historical irony here in that Newtonian physics with its universal gravitation, which seems to involve this instantaneous action at a distance, was rejected in the 18th century by Cartesian physicists who thought that it was nonsense to have this non-local effect. Now, Einstein, with general relativity, showed that actually gravitation doesn't involve local effects when in general relativity it's formulated as a field theory. You can see there's no need for instant action at a distance the gravitational force can be re-expressed. But with quantum mechanics, we seem to have non-locality coming back into the picture. Okay, so 
Newton's theory of universal gravitation, according to which every object is attracted to every other object in the universe, seemed spooky at first because it seemed to allow that the planet Earth down here can affect an airplane up there without anything passing between, and that seems to pose a lot of problems to the enterprise of science. When Einstein's general relativity theory came along, it showed a way of having basically the same theory, but in which you could analyze gravity as a local phenomenon that didn't involve this like action at a distance. But a lot of people who are interested in quantum mechanics seem to think that a similar thing can't happen there. There isn't going to be like, you know, Einstein 2.0 that's going to come along and uh, remove the non-locality that sort of pops up from the theory. What are some of the reasons for that? Good, yeah. So the Bohm theory interpretation of quantum mechanics I was talking about makes this non-locality highly explicit. It's right in there as action at, at a distance in the same way as something like Newton's um, gravitational force originally worked. But there are very good reasons to think that we can't remove non-locality entirely from quantum theory. So we've been talking about action at a distance. The phrase of Abner Shimoni, philosopher of physics, for the sort of non-locality we can't get rid of in quantum mechanics is passion at a distance. So it's a sort of a less problematic type of non-locality because it doesn't rely on these notions of instantaneous events which seem to introduce privileged frame of reference or notion of simultaneity and that's what Einstein's um, relativity told us that we couldn't have. That's one of the upshots of Einstein's special relativity that there's no there's no way of dividing up the world into privileged classes of simultaneous events. So where does this non-locality come from? Well, it's just right there in the way that um, when you interact two quantum systems together, you get a state of a composite system in a way that's different to physics. And the, the way in which quantum systems combine leads to a phenomenon called entanglement by Schrodinger another great paper of his in 1935. He said entanglement is the characteristic quantum phenomenon. What does that mean? Well, it means when you bring two systems together, interact them in the lab, such that their states individually are correlated, think here, say, a pair of photons. When you remove those two photons from the lab, you know, you could send them down fiber optic cables going in opposite directions, bounce them off satellites, whatever you like. The state of the system separately depends on the state of the system considered as a whole. It doesn't matter how far apart you take them. And these statistical dependencies through the quantum state of the joint system lead to non-local phenomena. And the way that we know that is through what are called Bell inequalities, or the Bell theorem, which was proved by John S. Bell, which essentially says that no reasonable classical explanation of these correlations, these statistical correlations, can be local. And we've seen with the Bohm interpretation 
where if you do try and sort of append the classical theory of point particles onto quantum mechanics, it becomes non-local. Um, so that's a sort of confirmation of this result of Bell. So what does this all imply? Like, what are some of the upshots of the fact that it looks like we're not going to be able to get away from these non-locality effects? It seems like that's uh, they're here to stay. The theory predicts them. Yes. So these sort of things worried physicists for a long time. Einstein is famous for introducing the phrase spooky action at a distance. There's something puzzling or possibly mistaken about these sort of effects. In recent years, we've come to see entanglement as a resource. That the special way that quantum systems combine, which is quite different to how classical systems combine, actually means that things are possible that we previously didn't think were possible. And one of the areas where this idea of entanglement as a resource um, has really taken hold is in the field of quantum computing, where a classical computer deals in bits. A bit can take state 0 or 1. And what a classical computer does is perform operations on classical bits to output some result. And the sort of operations you can perform on classical bits are going to be limited by the fact that they can either be 0 or 1. You know, you can add them, subtract them, so on and so forth. And with a quantum computer, the simplest quantum system is called a qubit. I think I mentioned that word before. And a qubit, because of the superposition principle, actually has a whole lot more states than just 0 and 1. There's all sorts of ways to combine the 0 state of a qubit and the 1 state of the qubit. And in fact, you can put those states into correspondence with the points of a sphere. So you can move all around that sphere, and those are all distinct states of your qubit, unlike a classical bit, which literally just has two states. It seems amazing that this theory that's so counterintuitive we're still struggling to figure out what exactly it means is perhaps very soon down the road going to lead to major changes in technology and you know our whole way of life that's a that's something to reckon with yeah well um you can already see quantum mechanics as being responsible for the semiconductor revolution so leading to this the present world of uh classical computing as a sort of universal resource. And ultimately, it seems we're heading towards a world where quantum computing is going to allow us to do all sorts of things better, or even allow us to do certain kinds of operations for the very first time. So it will be interesting to see what sort of revolution that brings, whether it will be of the magnitude of the internet. Tom Pashby, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to be here. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.